Hello, this is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva, a weekly review of international news from the United Nations. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Daniel Johnson, and over the next 15 minutes or so, we'll be hearing about the week's top stories, from Yemen to Peru to the hunt for the origins of COVID-19. Plus, we'll be hearing about how the World Food Programme is addressing a hunger crisis in Madagascar that's forced some people to eat mud and leaves to survive. And as ever, we'll be hearing from regular guests Solange Bejotegui-Cortez and Alfa Diallo. That's all coming right up. But first, to Madagascar, where the worst food crisis in decades continues to play out in the south of the country, also known as the Grand Sud. Apart from a chronic lack of rain, the Indian Ocean island is vulnerable to climate shocks, like the massive thunderstorms that have shifted sand dunes, burying what little people have managed to grow. The Covid crisis has made things even worse, putting a halt to the occasional labouring that many people do during the lean season, which began last September and is likely to last until April. To explain what's at stake and how the UN is helping those most in need, I spoke to the World Food Programme's Lola Castro, Regional Director for Southern Africa. I started by asking her to set the scene. The situation basically has been a disaster over the last five years, with recurring droughts and only one good harvest. And we have heard about it before. In September, we immediately had to come in and attend areas that we have never supported as a World Food Programme before because the crisis was so acute that there was excess mortality. This is what we're talking about. How many people are you helping and how many people are in need? At this moment, in the Grand South of Madagascar, Grand Sud of Madagascar, in December, we supported 500,000 people. We need to scale up to at least 900,000 out of the 1.3 million that are in their need at this moment. Who are the most in need? The most in need basically are the poorest of the poor. They produce their small harvest, but they haven't been able to produce due to the lack of water and incredible sandstorms that have hit this year. The harvest has been buried under sand, basically, if you want a picture. And those ones also who migrate to cities to look for labor. But due to COVID-19, they haven't been able to find any labor anywhere. So basically, the situation is much worse than what we have seen in decades. Recently, we were hearing that people were forced to scavenge for cactus leaves, cactus pears, and eating leaves with some salt and some sugar. I mean, this is just no way to live. Why can we not get in there immediately and do more? To be honest, we have been doing more. We, the government, the World Bank, other UN agencies, we have been working on resilience building activities in a number of districts in the Grand Sud, building irrigation, trying to stop the dunes from moving. The sand occupies the fields, the arable lands, working with the communities on what we call conditional transfers, that the people get food or cash, but they do something to improve their livelihoods. And that has worked in the communities and districts where we have done most of this work. It has been better this year, but we are not doing enough. We have to also do much more in these very difficult climate change times where we know it will never rain enough. So it's very important we do much more. So tell me, what are the dangers for children who don't eat enough, malnutrition and mental development? Yeah, what we are seeing now, okay, this is an area where chronic malnutrition, which is the basically the malnutrition that you get when you are already in your mother's womb. When you are in your mother's womb, and if you don't get adequate food and macronutrients, then when you are born, you are already malnourished. You are born with a potential to have your organs, inside organs, including the brain, 
much less developed and they will never develop enough. If you add to that what is happening now, that on daily basis, those kids don't even have one meal. And sometimes the meal is about water, cactus, a root mixed with mud because it has some micronutrients, some sand that has some minerals. So this is what these children are eating. The Sorry, you just said do... that children are eating mud. I mean, I heard that eating... perhaps chalk stones were being ground down to at least fill the stomach, but that's not going to provide any goodness, is it? No, but this mixed with cactus, with the leaves, as we said before. And what happens is the first thing what happens is the children drop out from school. Why they drop out from school? Because one, they are requested by their parents to help them to forage, to find foods, anything they can find to bring to the house and eat, or to beg. If they're in urban areas, they will be begging. How much money does a family need to survive every day? We are looking at a transfer, a social transfer of around 40 to 45 dollars will keep a family for a month. Yeah. So we are talking about a real small amount. But we are talking, however, about a lot of people. We are talking about having to provide that support to 900,000 people month on month because it's not a one-off. We are requiring at this moment $35 million. And that may increase because the situation is that we don't know how bad is it going to go. And my final question, thank you, Lola Castro from the World Food Programme, is what's the level of hope in the community? Because without hope, it's very difficult for people to carry on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, the level of hope at this moment is very low. But these people, they have their land, they have their traditions, they have their livelihoods in this area. And it's very difficult to tell them, no, go somewhere else. So we're trying to stabilize the dunes. We're trying to build resilience by planting plants that can produce food with very low water levels and can feed this population for a longer time. Trying to provide support on transport, water, ensuring that the basic services like health, nutrition, education are available and the children participate. And also working with the women, very important, with pregnant women and lactating women so the children are healthy from birth. And also working with women, especially on producing foods, transformation, etc., like from the cassava. The cassava is a drought-resistant plant. They are producing much more and they are transforming it in gari, which is the flower. And that flower can be fortified and provide the community much more energy and support. So a lot of activities are being done. We just need longer time, more support, and really all of us to go into it with the same purpose. That's all I will say. Lola Castro from the World Food Programme there. Now, the news. The United States' decision to designate Yemen's Houthis as a terrorist organisation will likely lead to a large-scale famine not seen for 40 years, the UN Emergency Relief Chief has warned. Addressing the Security Council on Thursday, Mark Lowcock said that it was not his intention to question the US decision, which was announced last Sunday against Ansar Allah, as the Houthis are formally known. But Yemenis were already stockpiling whatever they can afford, he said, while humanitarian agencies had long been unanimously opposed to the development. Mr Lowcock also discussed the issuance of special licenses for aid agencies. Would that help? Well, first, those licenses do not yet exist. Second, licenses and exemptions for humanitarian agencies will not solve the problem. As I've said, it's not humanitarian agencies 
who are importing most of the food. Latest UN data indicates that 16 million people will go hungry in Yemen this year, nearly six years after conflict erupted between the government of President Abdrabu Mansur Hadi and Houthi forces, who control vast stretches of the country. Police officers in Peru used unnecessary and excessive force against protesters who challenged the interim president last November, the UN Human Rights Office, OHCHR, has said. In a report published on Tuesday, OHCHR highlighted the failure of security forces to comply with international human rights norms during mass demonstrations. Spokesperson Liz Throssell said that its findings included that police officers had not distinguished between peaceful protesters who were in the majority and a minority accused of violence. The report says that that police fired pellets from 12-gauge shotguns and tear gas canisters directly at people's heads and upper bodies, indiscriminately and from close range. Two protesters were killed by shotgun pellets fired at their torso, and more than 200 people, including passers-by, were injured. In response to the report, High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet said that international law was clear on people's right to peaceful assembly and that lethal force should only be used to address an imminent threat of death or serious injury. An international team of 13 scientists examining the origins of the virus that causes COVID-19 arrived in Wuhan, China on Thursday. It was in the central Chinese city that the health agency announced more than a year ago that the authorities had identified the new coronavirus. The World Health Organization, WHO, which is overseeing the group, tweeted that the experts will begin their work immediately during the two-week quarantine protocol for international travellers. The headlines there, and before that, an interview with Lola Castro from the World Food Programme, who was speaking to me via Zoom from Johannesburg. If you want to listen to the full interview, you can. Please visit unnews at news.un.org forward slash audio hub. Now to wrap up this week's UN Catch-Up, I'm delighted to say hi once again to our regular guests, Solange Berhotegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo from the Information Service at UN Geneva. Hi, guys. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Alpha. Hello, Dan. Hello, Solange. (laughs) Thank you for being with us, Alpha and Solange. I'll start with you, if I may, Solange. As emergencies go, what we just heard there about Madagascar, that has to be right up there with the very worst situations for people. But I did like the focus at the end on the community resilience schemes that the World Food Programme and its partners are helping to set up. What were your thoughts, Solange? Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the great Colombian writer, author of Love in the Time of Cholera, said that wisdom comes to us when it is no longer useful. What is certain is that the pandemic has not invented anything. The virus is acting as a mirror. And I would like to share with you an image that my mirror brings me from the past. It was in 1998 in San Ignacio de Mojos, a small village in Beni, Bolivia, is the the north of the country. This is where you're from, Solange. Yes. And in San Ignacio de Mojos, I went in to talk to an old woman who lived in very poor conditions, alone with her hen and its chicks. She was so skinny that you could almost see her bones. And while we were talking, the old lady was feeding her hen. After a short time, she ran out and she said to her hen, Don't worry, dear. I'm not going to let you starve. But to feed you, I will have to kill one of your children. I mean, this scene affected me deeply. Today, I know and you know that the hen could be a woman with children living in total uncertainty. 
not knowing how to feed them the next day. That is why, as the Secretary General said, we need to turn the recovery into a real opportunity to do things right for the future. It will never rain enough in Madagascar, and WFP is doing a lot, but is still not enough. And in all these processes, it's important to involve women. Humanitarian people know that if you plan to build water wells, you have to work with the community to identify where you're going to put them. Most of the time, the men will tell you that they want the wells next to the football pitch, while women would say next to the schools. Thank you, Solange. That's really an evocative personal story. Thank you for sharing. And totally agree with you on the importance of involving communities and women in the decisions that will affect them in future. Alpha, over to you. What did you think of the World Food Programme's resilience building projects? Hello, Dan. As Solange said, I think the UN World Food Programme warned that there was no let-up on the worsening drought conditions this year in Madagascar. And for me, a poor harvest in 2020 means that communities had few resources to fall back on and many had had to leave their homes in search of food and work. And given this alarming situation, the UN agency had worked with communities to increase their resilience in the face of climatic shocks. It did so by building irrigation channels, for instance, and considering the key role played by women in ensuring families' food security. In this regard, the UN World Food Programme had been working with women to diversify their farming crops. For example, they used to grow maize for decades. And with the lack of rains, they were advised to grow cassava. They have been trained in the processing of gari, the cassava flour that is well known in West Africa. For me, Dan, the woman's resilience in Madagascar is a hopeful note. It is a hopeful note. And it's not the first time that I've heard humanitarians say that for every dollar invested in women, it creates about $7 in return. I think that's right. It's a huge multiplier, whereas the same can't unfortunately be said for men. So I think with that, it brings us to the end of this show. Thank you so much, Solange Bejotegui Cortez and Alpha Diallo, for joining me once again for our weekly catch up. And as ever, listeners, thank you for your time. You are a growing number two, I might add, which is really great. A big virtually distanced bear hug to all of you for tuning in and sharing our stories with whoever you like. I admit I got my children to have a listen and only one of them switched off, but not until near the end. So it could have been much worse. So until next time, look after yourselves and all the best. This has been UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. My name is Daniel Johnson. Until next time, bye-bye. (music) 